If you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. We've looked in our first session at the world. We've looked at, in our second session, what happens in here in the church. And now we're going to sort of put the two together and think a little bit about philosophically and to some extent practically what it looks like for what's in here to go out there, the church in the world. What does it look like for God's people to be on God's mission at work, at school, at play even? And part of um, sort of wrapping our our heads around that um, is coming to an understanding and appraisal of the church's disposition towards the world. Many times uh, we are prone to confuse a understanding of the world's condemnation apart from Christ with a, a condemnatory attitude towards people who don't know Christ. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to make that distinction. And we end up, contrary to the, uh, the counsel of Scripture, making flesh and blood our enemy. In a sense, there are, um, not even a sense, I mean, there very much are people who are enemies of the gospel, um, and yet, when we begin to think about who we were apart from Christ, we were enemies of the gospel as well. And we did not come to Christ, we did not enter the kingdom through um, primarily uh, the message of condemnation. You have to hear the message of condemnation, again, for the good news to be good. Uh, but it wasn't a message of condemnation given through a posture of condemnation. It was the message of condemnation followed by the message of reconciliation through a posture of grace. So, this means we don't treat the outside world, or we shouldn't treat the outside world, um, as our as our enemy, maybe enemies of God, but um, we need to see them as Christ saw them. And sometimes it's just all you know, having the perspective, the humble perspective of knowing who we were before Christ found us, and what was it that commended Christ to us, and understanding that in our flesh we are not uh, significantly different from people who do not know Jesus. Uh, what makes the difference between us is not that we are more religious or that we are better people, but because we know Christ. You and I are not inherently balanced persons. Since the fall, we have tended to kind of veer toward one of two fleshly uh, pol- uh, 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 polarities, often sort of teetering back and forth between them, depending on the, uh, what the circumstances call for as far as we are concerned, uh, our self-interest. The two polarities most at work in the world today, uh, not just in the religious world, but in the religious world also, are moralism and secularism. And we see these two um, polarities throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, reflected in categories like Jew and Gentile. If you're just thinking broadly, uh, what we see among the Gentiles is, uh, in a sense, secularism, and among the Jew, you have moralism. We see it in sort of the philosophical or theological categories of legalism and license. Um, think of the parable of the prodigal son. Many times that's, you know, there's a division or uh, a distinction categorized there. The prodigal, um, you know, the phrase prodigal son does not appear in the, in, in the parable itself, but the, the younger son who basically wishes his father was dead and runs off to kind of squander his inheritance on wild living, we see that's license, that's licentiousness or hedonism. And the older brother is legalism. We see him as sort of the rule keeper and the moralist. So you have secularism and moralism there in the same story. We see it reflected in things like law and flesh. We see it uh, reflected in um, basically the, the classic Reformed um, categories of gospel and law or grace and law. And basically every person has these two polarities inside themselves, whether they're religious or not, 
we tend to go either into license or we tend to go into kind of uh, legalism. So secularism, moralism. These are the opposites that shape the ways of the world. And what is interesting, as I said, is that they both play um, uh, inside the religious world and outside the religious world, where even entire religious institutions um, can sometimes be driven by licentiousness and worldliness. Um, Just look, for instance... um, yeah, so the nanny state, if you think of it that way, I don't mean trying to trying to get political. It's very moralistic. Um, think of like some of the animal rights activists and the things like the, the the shame tactics involved with what you eat or the kind of clothing that you wear, all those sorts of things. Uh, does, does the Bible speak about treating animals humanely? Of course it does. It talks about creation care to that um, extent. But you have irreligious people in terms of institutional or unchristian people who get very religious and very legalistic and moralistic about their particular views, right? Um, we just we can't avoid these polarities. Whether we're explicitly Christian or not, our heart tends to go to one or the other. Um, but even like our moralism is inherently fleshy. <laughs> and our secularism has become essentially religious. Uh, whether you or I tend to one of the other polarities, the essential unity of the two remains in this. Both are basically flip sides of the same coin, which is self-justification. Both moralism and secularism are endeavors in self-righteousness. So even when our heart, quote-unquote, is in the right place, we tend to think the answer to errors in one category are efforts in the other category, right? So what do we instinctively think about ultra-religious, legalistic people? We think things like, they just need to lighten up. They just need to loosen up a little bit. A little tight, a little uptight over there. We think the answer to an extreme in one category is a good dose of the other category. Even the prodigal son had this sort of instinct. If you remember his first thought when he was in that pigsty and he realized he, like, he felt the degradation of his own life, his first impulse was what? I can go work for my dad. His employees have it better than this. The idea that he would be received as a son and welcomed with grace and celebration, wasn't even like in his mind. He thought, I'll, I'll, I'll work myself back into good graces. He went from one polarity, the license polarity, into the other. i gotta, I got to work myself out of this. i got to prove myself. He went into a moralistic way of thinking. We always want to balance license with law or vice versa. This is the default approach of the religious in response to irreligiousness or license. You tell people to act right. And so I am convinced sometimes that the way the church speaks of the outside world is not so much that we want them to have salvation in Christ, but we want them to act right so that we'll be more comfortable. You're offending me. You're making me uncomfortable. Things will be so much better if you just acted like we acted, if you just got your act together. There's not a concern that there's, for their soul to be saved. We may say there is, but that would affect our disposition. When our disposition is anger or frustration or desperation about them, it's typically because they're inconveniencing us, they're frustrating us, we're afraid of them. And because people trend this way, the American church has trended this way. And this is why I think we've had the rise of the kind of attractional, self-helpy church movement. It's essentially an overreaction to the fundamentalist, pharisaical churches that came before. 
So you had a whole generation of church planters and pastors who said, you know, the church environments we grew up in, they're so stuffy. They weren't focused on outsiders. They weren't comfortable places to bring unbelievers. Uh, and they're very legalistic. The preachers get up and they just, thou shalt, thou shalt. I mean, thou shalt not. There's a lot of hellfire and brimstone telling all the things you shouldn't do. Don't drink, chew, or go with girls who do, that sort of thing. You know? yeah, don't, don't do these things or you can go to hell. It's so negative. So we need to fix it. And how did they fix it? By becoming more positive. So instead of like focusing on the things you're not supposed to do, we're going to focus on the things you're supposed to do. And we're going we're gonna to pitch it. It's not about trying to avoid hell. It's about having a good life and being successful and living your life according to God's plan. If you do these things, you'll get this sort of thing. So here's success in marriage and success at work. And, so, and you have a lot of practical application. And no one really realized, until it was too late in some regards, uh, that do isn't any less legalistic than don't. It's just a flip side of the same coin. They just became more positive. But it's still law. And you can dress down, you can dress casually, you can be really positive, you can be uplifting, you can change your style of music, you can reflect the world's values back to it in terms of your production and all those sorts of things. But if you're not preaching the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're essentially just as legalistic as any sort of buttoned up hellfire and brimstone thou shalt not preacher. Well, the irony, of course, is that we don't lose the legalism in that. The apprehension that we need is the same apprehension that encountered Paul on the road to Damascus. The grace of God, which is so dismantling of our categories. So the world of Jesus' day operated similar to the world of our day, which, which we've already covered. Um, people tended to think there's good people and there's bad people. And then Jesus shows up and says, no, there's people and there's me, basically. Like, there's only one good person. <laughs> uh, this is, I mean, this is like sh- straight out of the scriptures. There's no one good, no, one, no, not one, no one who seeks for God. Um, you know, if you want a seeker church, really, or a seeker-sensitive you know, church, you need to be the most sensitive to Christ because he is the one true seeker. He has come to seek and save that which is lost. And, but that, but it, so it just explodes our categories. It explodes our categories of who's in, who's out, and by and and by what virtue are they in, and by what vice are they out? Something you know, think of for instance um, something like the parable of the good Samaritan, which is really scandalous when you um, you know apply it. So, just to give you an idea of how people in Jesus' day would have heard that story, like we take the story and we moralize it because it's one of the polarities that we're drawn to. The way that we moralize it is do good things for people in need. That's kind of what we do with the parable, and that's a Good application. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a biblical value. Do good things for people that are in need. If you want to take it a step further, a little bit deeper, you would say, do good things for people who aren't like you. You might would do something like that. But the way Jesus cast the characters in the story is a lot more offensive than that, actually. So he has the religious people stepping over the guy who's waylaid and dying on the, on the side of the road. And if you know anything like geographically or historically about uh, that road, the, the road to Jericho, was very narrow. So it's not like, we sometimes picture like a highway and there's a dead body on the other side and we're going to, no, this is like, you almost have to like step over the body because the road was like almost like four feet or maybe five feet wide at the most. So these guys are stepping over the dead body of someone in need for their own religious you know, sensibility and security. And then the Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan picks him up. You know the story, picks him up. It's maybe the most famous parable outside the parable of the lost son. 
Um, he fixes them up, pays for his upkeep, puts them in a hotel, all these sorts of things. Well, if the point of the parable was simply do good things for people who aren't like you, Jesus would have had the Samaritan in the ditch dying. And a good Jew or somebody like that stopping to help. Instead, he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, the Samaritans, maybe you know, I mean, those days, so ethnically, they're on the outs. Religiously, they're on the outs. They're heretics, theologically. There's no question about that. They're heretics. Culturally, they're considered half-breeds. So, they're, they're, you know, they're not seen as pure in almost any sense of the word. And Jesus takes the, the impure person considered an outsider by all, by all rights, by his uh, predominantly Jewish audience, and he makes that person the hero of the story. Now, when we're externalizing it, we go, oh, that's really scandalous. But if he were to tell it today, like if he were to walk in here and he wanted you to hear the story or some other you know, uh, um, you know, evangelical uh, you know, uh, congregation, and he wanted it to have the same impact, he might tell the, the parable of the good Muslim. He would make the Muslim the hero of the story. See, already you're kind of like, oh, well, hold on. Muslims are heretics. So are Samaritans. Jesus is not making a commentary on the guy's theology. He's not saying he's orthodox. But he's doing something really provocative. Maybe he would. it would be the parable of the... Uh, by the way, the phrase good Samaritan isn't in that story either. These are labels we put on it, so don't get hung up on the title. But he might would tell the story of the good homosexual. Why would he do that? Why would he tell the story of the good Samaritan? It's a way of upending our categories of who is in and who's out, and by what virtue are they in, and by what vice are they out. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is not good people and bad people. There's people and me. And by applying moral value, doing something good to somebody that people could not conceive of of doing anything good, he's trying to say, your goodness is not the point. Even sinners can do good things. If you think your goodness is what gets you into the kingdom, you are so wrong. And he's also making a connection, of course, the question sort of prompted is, who is my neighbor? And so to make the enemy, the hero, is a way of saying, the people you least want to be neighbors with, those are the ones you most need to be neighbors for. Jesus entered that radically divided world, and ours in the West today may be as close to Jesus as it's ever before, as I said earlier. The worshipers of the one true God are a minority living in occupied territory under an increasingly oppressive and idolatrous secularism How then should we live? Moralistically? This is what Jeremiah is prophesying by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 4, Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now let's stop right there. We're going to kind of journey through the text at least about verse 14. But we're going to stop right there. Um, you see the sovereignty. We highlighted the sovereignty of God in um, in our previous sessions. Here you see um, the lot that the people of Israel find themselves in, the Lord is taking absolute credit for. <laughs> this place is a mess. God, what are you doing? I sent you there. I'm in control. As bad as it looks out there, when you... Pull up social media or watch your cable news or just walk into the workplace. As bad as that can be, the Lord's saying, hey, I sent you to this. You're to live sent in this place. 
What's also interesting is that the word, the you know, the concept of exile. I mean, you have this sort of generation. You have this cultural. The, the people are in exile. I mean, this is the uh, Jeremiah has about a forty-year ministry or so. This is on the, the 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 downside of the fall of the Assyrians and the upside of the rise of the Babylonians. And so they're captives, and they're just living like aliens or strangers in this world that is not controlled by them. They're not in the seat of power anymore. Uh, Jeremiah has seen essentially the the, the temple. Uh, 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 destroyed in his own day. So the seat of power of religious concentration is now, uh, in their minds, obliterated. There is a sense of hopelessness that is there. And they're living in occupied territory. Jesus walked into the same situation. It's not the Babylonians, but the Romans. And the Jewish people are living under Roman occupation in their own homeland. Do we not have a sense then, as we read the New Testament, and it speaks of the church being in exile. Peter addresses his letters to those who are elect exiles. The sense of exile is basically part of living in this world as a Christian. The very idea that we would live in a place where we're in power and we're in control is almost foreign. It's a foreign concept to the picture of the church in the scriptures. We weren't made to be in political power. And in fact, I think sometimes what we see is the more political power we get, the less salty we become as believers. It's a kind of idolatry. So this is an opportunity... And the Lord is saying, I, I've created this situation, or I've orchestrated this situation for this very reason, for this purpose. You're in exile. Now, exile presupposes that we are in Babylon, not Jerusalem. So one of the major mistakes the church has made is expecting Babylon to act like Jerusalem. To be like Jerusalem. To even recognize Jerusalem as something ideal to be. This is one of those dispositions. Lost people, have you figured out? Lost people act lost. The expectation that lost people would act like found people makes zero sense. They're acting spiritually dead. That should not surprise us. It should grieve us. I'm not saying we should be happy about it. But to be shocked when unbelievers act like they don't believe. They're just keeping with their own nature. That should grieve us. That should move us in compassion. But it shouldn't shock us, surprise us. There are right and wrong ways in which it should offend us. So the church's missional posture into the world has to reflect the expectation that lost people act like lost people. And when we understand that lost people act like lost people, we will be more inclined to give them what they really need, which is the message of the gospel, and not a moralistic talking to. Let's just put it within your own household. How well do moralistic talking to's work, even among Christians? You got kids, you want them to pick up after themselves. What do you do? You want them to pick up? What do you say? You, you just tell them, pick up after yourself. Right? And then they forever after, they pick up after themselves, yeah? You just tell them, and they have the information now, and so they do it. Adults don't even do this, much less children. How well is it working? Well, maybe you tell them a second time. You say it a little louder. Just say it louder and look mean. Then they'll do it. Right? That works. I mean, it might work right there in the moment because they're afraid or something. Okay, well, you just tell them a bunch of times and then you add consequences. You better do this or that. And that solves the problem. They forever... No, like we just, you just know experientially the moralistic talking to does not solve the problem. What do they need? 
they need a desire to do that thing you want them to do? How do they get that desire? In some way, their affections have to be oriented around doing that versus what they have been doing. They need to find joy in that somehow, see a purpose in it that's greater than just conforming their behavior to what you're saying. I mean, nagging works for behavioral conformity, but nagging's not the real win, is it? I mean, even if people conform behaviorally, their heart can be far from you. They're just doing it so you'll shut up. Or so they don't face the consequences. Right? There's a movie that came out several years ago. There was a couple arguing over the dinner, at, you know, post-dinner party, washing the dishes. And she wanted the dishes washed before they went to bed. He was like, I'll wash the dishes. I'll just do it in the morning, or, you know, or let me play some video games first, and then I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. She's like, I want you to do it now. And he's like, it's, what a big, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's like the dishes. I'll, I'll clean the dishes. And she said, uh, you know, I don't want you to wash the dishes. I want you to want to wash the dishes. Right? I mean, that's what we want, right? I don't want you to take the trash out. I want you to want to take the trash out. To which, of course, he responded, why would I want to wash the dishes? You don't want to wash the dishes, which is why you're asking me to wash the dishes. Like, why, why do you want me to have a desire you don't even have? You wouldn't be putting it on me if you wanted to do it. Right? Well, but that's true of, of, of so much. Or the little illustration that John Piper gives about the, the husband and the wife. Or, um, the husband says, must I kiss you? And his wife says, yes, you must, but not that kind of must. Not out of obligation. Not out of duty. But because you must kiss me. Out of passion. Affection. A heart that is for me. Let's translate that dynamic that we know, anecdotally, the moralistic talking to doesn't work. How do we look at the outside world? The reality is that we should not expect Babylon to start acting like Jerusalem. Instead, we are to live like Jerusalem within Babylon, being in the world, but not of it. Or the other biblical category, they're like a city on a hill. This is a picture that Jeremiah is receiving and then giving to them and through them to us. Verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, first of all, I mean, if you just read this on the surface, this is not anything that Christian evangelicals typically have any trouble with. Uh, that's one point of encouragement. Uh, I should have said last night, one of the things we were working through in the, in, in, in the leader session last night was like, what encouragements do we have in the midst of a changing world and all those sorts of things. One of the encouragements is that um, uh, Christians have a whole lot more babies than the unbelieving world does. Um, I mean, it's not a it's not a, a gospel posture necessarily. It's not like if you just over you know overrun everybody, but th- like things may change. In the same way, on the negative side, there's a reason why Islam is it, it, you know is it, it, taking up a whole lot of ground in places in Europe because there's a just the sheer number of them, and you end up in places of influence and power. They have lots and lots of children, and the traditional the native European does not. And the same is true over here. Christians continue to have babies, and a lot of babies, and unbelievers increasingly so, increasingly liberal, increasingly uh, secularizing, um, native, uh, or uh, yeah, yeah, white Americans in particular, um, there have who are not believers tend to have fewer and fewer children. The, the number of the, the family is getting smaller. So at some point, we're just going to outnumber them. 
I don't know if you find that encouraging or not. But So there's that. So we, so we look at this and we think, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I could do that. But one thing we need to see is just the disposition. Why this commandment? Why would he give them this decree, which um, is interesting. I mean, they're going to keep getting married and having kids anyway. But the reason, like, but the planting of gardens is interesting. The building of houses is interesting. Why is all that there? Well, first of all, it doesn't give the inclination that you're just passing through. He's basically not saying, hey, look, just hold on tight. This is all going to be, like, I'm going to fix all this. And then we'll put you in your own land, and then you can get back to business as usual. No, he's basically saying, treat exile like it's business as usual. See this as normal before the the day of the Lord comes. While you're here, see your sense of alienation as just the way it is. Which is really interesting. Doesn't look temporary. He's telling them to put down roots in the places of their exile. It doesn't give the sense, right, so the, the old cliche of, like, this world is not my home. I mean, the world is not my home, okay, there's a sense in which that's certainly true, we are citizens of heaven. But there's a sense in which that's not true. So when we say things like, the world is not my home, we should not mean that this world is not the place God has called us to live out his kingdom. Because here we are, where else are we going to be? The biblical forecast, in, in, in fact, is not of the Lord crumbling up this place like a you know, piece of trash and throwing it into the waste bin. The biblical forecast is of a new heavens and a new earth, that this place is going to be redeemed. So in a very real sense, this world is our home. We're not going to be evacuated up into some disembodied bliss. You know, My view of sort of what happens at the end growing up was kind of like more drawn from the Tom and Jerry cartoons and I think from the Bible, right? It's like you're going to be in a cloud with a diaper playing a harp. And I don't know why anybody was ever interested in that vision of heaven. I don't know. Um, but to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, yes. Uh, to believe in the intermediate state, those sorts of things. But the, the, the end vision, the end goal that the Lord is holding out for us is not about us getting sucked up off of earth and into some heaven, but about heaven coming to earth and about him redeeming what has been fallen and him vanquishing the curse from this place that he made good. And he's going to make it again, remake it again. So in that sense, we need to live in this place as if this place has a permanence to it. And the condition of it is not permanent, but the place itself is a signpost to the permanence of God's good creation. And the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is going to be the visible, glorious king. In fact, he'll be the son, S-U-N, um, of the Uh, creation, the new creation itself. Revelation tells us that. The lamb will be the lamp of the new creation. We won't need a sun anymore. So, suburbia may be your home, but you need to rethink, what does it mean to live in exile in this place? When we say this world is not my home, we should mean the world that is passing away, the sinful system of the world, the corruption, the injustice. So the city may be your home. How do you live there in exile? This nation may be your home. How do you live here in exile? So, for instance, this is something I I thought through when I lived in Nashville, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to get my family to Vermont, because I just saw the influence of suburban life, of the consumerism that comes with it. And we're just shaped by our environments. It's just how it happens. The values that we swim in, the messages that we receive, the rhythms of of daily life begin to affect how we think of the world and think of our place 
in the world. So you have to be on guard. It doesn't mean that certain kinds of places are sinful or more sinful than others. It just means we need to be on guard about the way our environments shape us. What is it about the place I live that I could very easily slip into a kind of idolatry and forget the fact that I am an alien, that I am in exile here? It doesn't mean we detach or don't put down roots, but it just means I need to be on guard. So just as an example, suburbia may be your home, but comfortable consumerism should not be. The city may be your home, but greedy materialism should not be. America may be your home, but nationalism should not be. Your house may be your home, but your security should be Christ. And so we ought to remember that even the good gifts that God gives us are not even themselves eternal. Some of the the, um, gifts of permanency this side of his return. Things even like marriage, which is designed to be carried out until death do us part. Even that comes to an end because it's a signpost of what Christ is going to do when he returns. On the flip side, if we only think in short-term ways, we can become careless. Convenience, comfort, living at the expense of others, living exploitatively, whether we know we are doing that or not, or thoughtlessly. Living as one who cares for creation, not idolatrously, certainly not paganistically, but not thinking, oh, he's going to throw this place away anyway. Who cares how I treat it? God made this thing. He stewarded it to you. We should be careful with how we live and how we act. God calls us to live in such a way, in exile, that we believe He is in control, even if we are not. Not to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but also not to be so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. Instead, verse 5 is essentially calling us to live invested. Live invested in the world around you. Martin Luther says, If I knew God was coming back tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree today. Which is rather interesting. I think what he's trying to say is, our little faithfulness is important. I've been given today for today. I'm going to do what's incumbent upon me for today, today. It is simple faithfulness in light of God's call and glory. Verse 5 has a similarity to what we call the American dream. And there are very good aspects of the American dream. The American dream can be a great... Pursuing the American dream can be a good way of loving your neighbor, if only because it provides... um, It it, it secures provision for your family, but um, many times for other families. And stability in your community... Those who work hard, establish themselves, provide means of employment for others, or maybe as you accumulate money, you're able to give money or goods to others who are in need. The pursuit of the American dream, rightly understood, can be a good value and virtue in society. But we are so given to polarities that we tend to make an idol of this thing. The focus of the biblical investment that God calls the exiles to is not on their own peace and prosperity, but on those of their neighbors. So, verse 7, you're doing all that stuff, building houses, planting gardens, good job, having a lot of babies. Why? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now, hold on a second. Lord, they're unbelievers. They're set against you. Can't I just live for my own right here and take care of my own? This, that, that's not the prophetic witness. 
Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For, this is really interesting, for in its, in its welfare you will find your welfare. And now here is something really unique. Basically, a Jerusalem in Babylon that is for Babylon. A community centered on God that is for the community centered on itself. This is love your neighbor on the ecclesiological scale or sociological scale. Moving from individual to corporate. Basically, the Lord is saying, if you want to prosper, you will seek the prospering of your neighbors. Now, there's typically two ways that evangelicals go about their relationships with their neighbors. And I don't mean necessarily your immediate neighbor. I know you're friendly with your neighbor. I know you're great with your neighbor. But I just mean in terms of the outside world. How do evangelicals typically think of the outside unbelieving world? And they reflect that polarization, that pendulum swing, that imbalance that's embedded in all of us. We tend to relate to the world around us in one of two ways, as consumers or as combatants. How do we relate to the world as consumers? Well, we use the community for our own comfort and convenience, for our prosperity. The world exists to be used, consumed, or profited from. And when we relate to the world that way, we start doing church that way. So we start asking really weird questions that are unbiblical, like who is our customer and what does our customer want? Which is a real question asked by a very influential church 20-something years ago. That became a driving motivation for a whole movement of evangelical churches in America. Who's our customer? What does our customer want? And then you have the rise of the consumeristic church then, when, where uh, worship is performance-driven, and there's an idolization of excellence, not simply the adornment of excellence, but the idolization of it, the pursuit of it. You have things um, where you tailor services and campuses and for different demographics and uh, the rise of video venues and online campuses, which makes no sense. Online church that doesn't make any sense. Virtual church that's uh, that's a, that's like jumbo shrimp. It doesn't make any sense. A virtual church, church is real. You don't have church virtually, right? We've forgotten who the audience is, and we have forgotten that you should never appeal to the flesh to win a soul. It doesn't work that way. So this is why, in making the faith practical, we need to be careful not to make it pragmatic. Pragmatism assumes that evangelism must always be a kind of invitational, attractional enterprise. And this is why I think we've seen evangelistic lag among average evangelicals, is because we have a whole system of church for the last 20 years that has basically said, leave it to the experts. Just get them in the room. We'll take care of it. And we have de-incentivized our people to share the gospel personally with others. Now, is it good to bring people to... Absolutely, yeah, bring them to church so they can hear the gospel. But when you say, look, just... This is where it's done. You're telling people, it's not done out there, it's done in here. And now we've de-incentivized and we've for, failed to train. We've discouraged people from ways to, of, of sharing the gospel in their everyday life. We turn go and tell into come and see. Pragmatism is anti-spiritual and it's legalistic. Why is it legalistic? It's legalistic because it operates in law mode, which is basically if you do this, you will get that. Pragmatism treats church methodology like a vending machine. The transforming wisdom of the gospel then comes and subverts secularism, the influx of secularism, which is what this is in the church. People want signs and wonders. People want signs and wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
One of the most important emphases we miss in our church's mission in a secular society is that our work is supernatural. And I think we lose sight of that so easily. What we preach is foolishness. And we are trusting the Holy Spirit to work power. So the consumeristic church is theologically disastrous because it makes the individual the center of the religious universe. But even thinking pragmatically, it isn't working in accomplishing discipleship because consumers will always go where they can get the best deal. So if we're not thinking consumeristically about the world around us, how else are we thinking? We're thinking as combatants about the world around us. And now enter uh, the never-quite-dead culture war. And it seems to ramp up more rapidly these days. The election cycles seem to get shorter and shorter. Both sides of the... Um, uh, of the political aisle, we're still in this, you know, strange two-party system, um, which is um, really interesting. Um, you know, you, yeah. Anyway, that's a political rabbit trail. It's like, how have we not figured this out after two hundred? Anyway, they're increasingly going to the extremes. It's very hard to find a moderate on either side. So, you know, those who may would sort of affiliate with the Democratic Party, for instance, now uh, abortion on demand is like part of the platform. It's not just a personal view of some Democratic candidates. It's like a part of the deal that you would buy into this. Um, and, and so you just see the, the increasingly uh, the, the extremism that is actually on, like on both sides. And what's really interesting, and I'm not a sociologist again, but there are some who say, have you heard of like the horseshoe theory? Which is that the further you go in extreme to the opposite side, the closer you get to the extreme of the other side. And we see similarities. They may have different like philosophical points but the way they act and the way they interact and their values tend to be very similar uh, when you get to the extremes of those things. And the church gets caught up in this so frequently. So frequently. We marry our religion to our political views. Or we're just so afraid of what's going on out there, we're afraid of being infected by it or invaded by it, we just circle the wagons and just kind of hunker down. Some think this is one of the reasons for the decline of religion in New England. Uh, in particular, as as the place got more "quote unquote" liberal, the church to protect itself from the outside began to become more insular, less open, less transparent, less on mission. Hey guys, we we need to build the walls up so we don't catch what's out there, and consequently, you just begin to shrink because you're not outreaching. You're just trying to be in the bunker, get in the ark as the flood is coming, supposedly. Now, why do we act like that? Why do we do those things? Well, the prophet seems to indicate we do those things when we believe things that aren't true. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. This is something I want to say on Twitter almost every day. (laughs) I know this guy's a a spokesperson for your political interest, or maybe for your church. Don't let him deceive you. He might have the right position, but he does not have the right posture. It is a lie, verse 9, that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What is it? It's false prophets. We need to remember that the, the possibility of false prophets, the potential for false prophets, is still alive today. And it's not just the crazy people on religious television. I know you know better than to trust those guys. The dangerous ones are the ones who rise up from within our own ranks, who speak words that tickle our ears. That sounds right. I believe that. I don't like those same people he doesn't like. He must be onto something. Particularly when they feed on your anger or your fear. That's where you really need to be careful. 
I don't mean to keep picking politically, but cable news, I won't pick on a particular station, but it's just, that's all it is, is feeding on fear. I remember, so I repented of my political idolatry. I'm conservative politically. Um, I remember during the 2000 election, I was watching my father, and it was Thanksgiving, and they're still counting those stupid chads down in Florida. Remember that? The guy with the magnifying glass? And man, I was so, like, my guy's got to win. Everyone thought that, right? My guy's got to win. What's gonna, this world's going to go to pot. My guy doesn't win. And I felt so convicted. I didn't change my politics or my political leaning or anything like that. But I repented of my idolatry. My hope was set on who was in the White House. And I have to be careful ever since then. If my guy's not in the White House or if my guy is in the White House, that my hope isn't there. And I, so I, I repented of cable news because that's what it was doing. It was basically this drug that fed on my fear and my anxiety. And it just exacerbated the situation. Always anxious because they're always yelling at you and there's always things flying across the screen. Also, I mean, it's just, even programmatically, it's just, it's starting to exacerbate me. I start to get nervous. And, and then I'm angry and everything I talk about is something that I'm angry. Can you believe this guy did that? Can you believe this guy said this? And now I'm just being driven by a reaction to what's happening in the world. They strike the polarity in me towards moralism. And these are guys that I philosophically agree with. So I've got to be really careful. So whenever someone's playing on your fear or on your anger, you need to be really careful. They may be even saying some true things. They may even be religious or Christian. Beware of false prophets. Sometimes the lies come. Sometimes the calls come from inside the house, to reference a horror movie. Get out! It's coming from inside the house. The world does not need combatants or consumers. What it needs is Christians. Christians who approach work and school and even their leisure time thinking like missionaries. So this is what I want to do. In the time we have left, uh, just offer you three sort of practical applications to think like a missionary, to think like someone who is sent. How do we take what's in here out there? The first thing to do is this. Exegete your community. Exegete your community. E-X-E-G-E-T-E. Basically, interpret. I gave you a fancy word so you can feel smart. Exegete your community. This is what missionaries do, basically. You don't just show up with your plan. You have to understand where you're going, the ins and outs of that context, the history of that the language of that context. You know all those things. Not so you might buy into what is sinful in those contexts, but so you might know how the gospel can be applied to those things. So, for instance, when Paul... Uh, Acts chapter 17, entered Athens, he saw that the city was full of idols. And he's beginning to see, okay, this is the different idolatries in this city. How How is my gospel going to speak to that particular idolatry? Notice, he doesn't change the gospel, the message doesn't change, but how he applies it or contextualizes it um, might, depending on where he is. So one of the most you know, famous examples is when they had the statue to the unknown God. Do you remember? And Paul uses that. He doesn't, he doesn't say that there is some... Un, he said, there is a God. The God that you don't know is actually the only God that is real. Let me tell you about this unknown God. You see other times where he's quoting some of the pagan poets. Um, why would he do that? Is he trying to affirm paganism? No, absolutely not. But he's trying to use these things as doorways to apply the gospel to some of their belief systems and the things that affect them. So this one thing I do with a lot of my pastoral coaching is I have the pastors think through... What are the idols of your community or your neighborhood? And I even asked them, what are the idols in your church? Because every church has a set of idols. Things that rival Christ for their attention or their devotion. You think, well, how can that be? Like, we don't worship graven images or anything like that. But it's anything that would just rival Christ for your total allegiance. And it can be good things. 
So not things that you shouldn't engage in necessarily, but that shouldn't distract you from living like you're a sent person in exile. So that you're distinct from the world around you. So in some places, for instance, one of the idols is uh, youth sports. I don't know if that's an idol here or not. I don't know your context. But in a lot of places in the South and in other places where I talk to pastors, that's a deal. Man, it's like families, they're gone from gathered worship multiple weeks out of the year, multiple uh, Sundays out of a month because of youth sport. That becomes the family revolves around youth sports. And let's just be honest. Like just the idea your kid is going to make the major like statistically, that's probably not likely. And so it doesn't mean that you don't do youth sports or anything like that. But does that become your religion? Your religion is that which occupies your utmost devotion and behavior. Shouldn't that be the people of God and the eternality of the kingdom? It may be something else. Different contexts, pursuit of money, your job. Some idols are very common. Some are very specific to different areas. So this is something to figure out for yourself. What is it in my community that people really are pursuing after? It's the heaven for which they're trying to reach through these laws. What do they think is heaven? And then, you, and then you know, all right, how does the gospel speak to that? How might I actually speak to that situation or that idol with a word from Christ? Identifying idols is important because it prevents us, for instance, from falling sway to the idol. So don't just go on autopilot. We're actually on guard. Oh, this is a danger. Like everyone around me is pursuing this thing. I need to make sure that I'm very circumspect about this thing. And it actually helps us help people with solutions that they actually need. So, for instance, this is important because it helps us not fall sway to workaholism when we work. Either the idolatry of success or money or greed, right? In school, it's important because it helps us not fall sway to rival ideologies of false gospels, naturalism or materialism or socialism or evolutionary theory. At play, it helps us because we um, need to be on guard against falling sway to idolatries like laziness or the idolization of play and leisure. Secondly, after we exegete our community, we need to make sure that even that is driven by, but also is followed up by love for our community. Exegete your community, love your community. The truth is, you cannot love somebody and use them at the same time. When Christ saw the crowd, helpless, hopeless, do you remember the response he had? These grody people, they'd only get their act together. (laughs) No, he had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He basically saw lost people acting like lost people and realized they're lost people. And that word even compassion, the word that's used for compassion there, isn't like a, like a pity. I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, there's a piece of it that's like that. It's not like you felt sorry. It, the word compassion is like a brokenness in the guts. It's like a visceral reaction. He's grieved. These people need me. That's how we're to see the outside world. Not immediately with anger. Not immediately with frustration. Not immediately with the irritability of discomfort. But, oh, these people need Jesus. That's why they're acting this way. Because they need Christ. And if I didn't have Christ, I would be right there among them. They need Jesus. And love means serving people. And it means serving people this way primarily. So uh, thirdly and finally, as a point of practical application, proclaiming Christ in your community. 
proclaiming Christ in your community. Uh, I sat around a fire with a few of your pastors last night, and um, we were talking about uh, missional, the idea of missional, <laughs> um, which depending on where you find the word missional can be a jump drawer for some things that you don't want to engage in. Uh, I like the word missional because it helps us to see Christians as living as sent people in the world. In other words, to think and live like a missionary wherever you live, even if you're not going up to the farthest reaches of the earth. So it means exegeting your community, loving your community, but also fundamentally that people would hear the message of Christ because of you. So it's not about i got to get people into the building. You can do that. That can be a part of it. But to see yourself as an ambassador for Christ wherever you are, at work, at school, down the street, when you see your, your physical neighbors, to proclaim Christ. There's a lot of good things we can do that we ought to do to love the people around us, social justice things, charitable things, just the kindness. But none of those replaces what people ultimately and eternally need, which is to hear the message of the gospel. And the gospel is a better way because it frees us from these polarizations of license and legalism. I just want to mention a couple of things about evangelism here. Because this is another thing that we talked about, I think, last night at the leader training session that I thought would be good to repeat. Um, one reason why, I, so I'm convinced, one reason why uh, evangelicals don't share the gospel like they used to, part of it is because of that de-incentivization of the way church is done. We say Sunday morning is, a, is the evangelistic event. Just get people in. We'll handle it. And we de-incentivize people. But the other part is, like, we, we have really... Uh, made evangelism harder than it ought to be, the idea of it. Um, and it's already hard. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> but we've made it harder a few ways. So I'll just, I don't know if this resonates with you. When you know, I grew up in the church, the training for evangelism I had was largely about uh, sealing the deal. How do you get somebody to sign on the dotted line? How, like, how do you close them? And so this involved, like, it was almost, you know, like, you know when someone calls you, a telemarketer calls you, and you have a thing you say to not be talking to a telemarketer, and you know they have a thing that they say to keep you talking to a telemarketer? They've got the script. It's either on their computer or their notebook. When they say this, you say this. And you just know, like, this is like a robot. Like, you're a person, but this is a robotic deal. That's how I felt like evangelism was trained. When they say this, you say this. And it's all about winning this sort of rhetorical war, pinning someone in a corner, and then getting them to pray a prayer. Well, that, that was like hugely overwhelming and stressful. Man, I got to get somebody to say a certain thing or to admit a certain thing or um, or apologetically, right? It's getting more difficult today because people have different questions. You got to take 10 steps back. Used to be you brought up the idea of God. Most people believed in God, even if you know, if they're not Christians, they believe there's a God and an afterlife. And you're working with similar categories. They think you just be good and you get to heaven. And you're able to say, oh, no, actually, it's a message of the gospel. Now, people don't even believe in God, right? Few and fear. Like you, they're like, oh, you just believe that because, you know, you grew up in the, in, in the church in, in the West. Uh, but if you grew up in India, you would be a Hindu, and, you know, which is probably true. But that doesn't make one view more or less true than the other. And we just feel overwhelmed. Like, I, I'm not a scholar. I don't have the, the apologetic chops to do evangelism now. And so we just, we feel overwhelmed and we shrink back 
And then you just put on top of that just the normal stuff of like, it's, it's hard to talk to strangers, it's hard to talk to family, to have these serious conversations. It makes things awkward, it's difficult, people might get mad, or whatever it is. You tell someone a sinner, that's not like a good news thing, right? They're not going to like that. So you put all of that in, and we just, we like shrink back. We just feel burdened by it, or stressed by it, or overwhelmed by it. And here's the thing that just, I think, I, I, I hope, in my own life it has, and in others that I've ministered to has, really liberated them to share the gospel more, which is simply this. You're not responsible for success. You're just responsible for faithfulness. The belief of someone isn't your responsibility. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Your responsibility is just that people hear. Now, if you're able to take next steps and pray a prayer with somebody, if you can answer apologetic questions... All of a that's great. You can adorn your sharing of the gospel with all of that stuff. But anyone who believes in the true gospel can share the true gospel. Because the gospel is power. Faith comes by hearing. You need to make sure they hear. You don't have to seal a deal. One of the best on-ramps um, for evangelism I found is a, a, a question. I, I call it like an evangelism hack because it works for me. Um, so I ask the question when I end up in evangelistic conversation, uh, what would you say the essential message of Christianity is? It's hard for me to avoid religious conversations. I know for some of you, if you don't have a ministry job, um, it somehow has to come up more organically, or you just insert it and it, and it feels unnatural and those sorts of things. For me, when I go out, someone's making small talk, I'm in a religious conversation because of my job, just how it goes. What do you do? I work at a seminary. Oh, okay. Now we're in a religious conversation. That's just how it goes. Same thing when I was a pastor. I just couldn't avoid it. And so sometimes people will make, they're trying to make a bridge, you know. I've never had anyone get angry about it. I think we fear kind of hostility that may be there. But most people are really peacekeepers. No, like most people just don't like conflict generally. So even if they're uncomfortable, they're not going to be angry. They're not going to hit you or anything like that. Um, sometimes they try to make a bridge, right? And it's always, when I was in Vermont, where no one's a Christian, right? That's not true, but like no one's a Christian. They would say, say things like, oh, my best friend's boyfriend's girlfriend's mom's aunt used to go to church. You know, they're trying to make some kind of connection, right? And uh, like, oh, and, I, and I'll say, oh, that's great. You know, I just, you know, I don't say, well, that's stupid, you know. But I say, oh, that's nice. It's good to hear, you know. Um, and then I'll find some way, some road to saying something like, hey, what would you say? If I were to ask you, which I am right now asking you, what's the essential message of Christianity? Or what would you say the message of the church is? I'm just curious because as a pastor or as a, you know, seminary prof, I'm very curious on the perception of the outside world on the church. What would you say is the essential message of, of Christianity? And then you put the ball in their court. You've asked them a question. They get to kind of pontificate a little bit. I have never, not once, in using that question countless times in cabs, Uber rides, getting my hair cut, on airplanes, I've never once heard anyone articulate anything close to the gospel. Sometimes it's good and true things. They'll say things like, oh, you know, I think it's like be like Jesus or follow Jesus' teaching. Or be good. It's generally some version of be good. And now it's just a, it's like they've just opened the door for me to say, hey, you know, actually that's a good thing. The Bible does teach. You know, we do believe we're supposed to follow Jesus' teaching and um, that we are to be good. We're to be good to others and those sorts of things. But do you know that's not like the ascent, the, the thing that makes Christianity Christianity is this. And you, you're able to lay out, depending on the person and the context, the facts of the gospel. That none of us are good, really. And in fact, God knows this. And he's so gracious and so loving that despite our inability, he sends his son to do what we couldn't do. His son's name is Jesus. And he died on the cross 
to forgive our sins because we couldn't pay that back ourselves. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we try to obey the teachings of Jesus, he does it for us. And if we believe in him, we can be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. Now someone has heard the gospel. And your question is, how much fruitfulness have you seen from that? How many people have gotten saved? Very, 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 very few. And I pray about that, and I think about that, and I grieve that. But in the end, I understand that if someone's heart is going to change, it must come by the Holy Spirit. But in the way it comes by the Holy Spirit is through the hearing of the gospel. So in the end, I, don't, I, I, I let the Lord worry about success. And I carry the burden of faithfulness. I don't know if that helps you or not. A couple of months ago, I was in the Houston area. I was um, speaking at a, a youth camp and a couple of churches. And um, there's a I don't know if anyone's familiar with Texas, but uh, Whataburger is like the burger joint. So if you're a Texan, this is like foreign to you, but uh, if you're a Texan, like Whataburger, you don't want to hear about In-N-Out. You don't want to hear about uh, Whataburger. And it's the best, I guarantee. So I went to Whataburger like three times within the span of a week. And twice when I was there, there was an, there was an older man there who was evangelizing in, in the Whataburger. And he had a, a Bible on his little table. And he was there both times I was there. So I don't know if it's a daily thing for him or not. But he was there both times that I visited uh, on two different days. And he had his Bible open and some religious books. And every now and then he'd get up and he would walk over uh, to a table. And this was his opening line. I couldn't hear everything in the conversation, but I could hear his opening line, which was, what... Um, what do you think when I say the name Jesus? What do you think when I say the name Jesus? And everyone that I heard respond somehow told them that he, you know, told him that they were a Christian or that they liked Jesus, which was good enough for him, and he turned around and would go back to his seat. Didn't engage with, with anyone. So I thought a couple of things. First of all, I was convicted that I was just sitting there eating my double burger with jalapenos and cheese while this guy is trying to win the lost, right? So I thought that, right? Some people say, don't you like somebody's way of doing it better than your way of not doing it, right? <laughs> an, awkward, an awkward sharing of the gospel is better than no sharing of the gospel. That's absolutely true. But I was also exegeting this guy's approach to evangelism. And one of the things I noted was, whenever somebody affirmed that they were a believer, or at least, and let's be honest, probably, you know, at, at least some of them were not believers, I'm guessing. They just wanted him to go away so they could eat their lunch. So they might say, I like Jesus, or I go to church, or something. And he would take that as, oh, you're a Christian, and then he would go sit down. So I'm thinking two things. First of all, he's seeing these people, yeah, perhaps as lost people who need Jesus, but also as like a religious project for the day. At no point did someone affirm Christianity, and he was like, I just met a brother or a sister, and wanted to sit down and have a conversation, which sort of, and I'm, I'm judging him, I'm not being an advocate for him, but I'm trying, trying to apply it to my own life. I don't want to treat the world around me as check marks on my religious duty list. That's living in a moralistic way. So if I encounter someone who doesn't know Christ, I want them to hear Christ from me. And if I'm out sharing the gospel and someone indicates they do, and I walk away, I basically turn my back on a brother or sister and indicate it, I'm really only interested in you as a religious project, not as a person. Which is also, you see, um, if someone's not a believer and they reject you, and you think, well, that's it, and you cease to love them or to interact with them, now you're communicating to them, you didn't really love me. I was just on your religious project list. What the Lord is calling us to, as awkwardly as it may be, I don't know what your opening line is, what your door, what your evangelism hack is. Do you love people? Like really love them. Not just want them to be saved so you're more comfortable or more successful at evangelism. 
but because you love them and you care for their soul. That's the care that God had for you and the care that we're to have for others. Thus says the Lord. This, here's, a, here's a picture we have of what the Lord is doing. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, we have to be very careful not to overinterpret. Verse 11 is very often taken out of context to apply to some version of our own aspirations and dreams, a kind of sentimental religion. It's very similar to some of the verses taken out of context in the New Testament. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I used to have a poster on my wall of a guy playing, uh, of a guy dunking a basketball and had the verse on there. I'm like, yeah, I can dunk someday if I just believe hard enough, right? Verse 11 of our passage here is not about a promise for your personal ambitions and personal aspirations. The context is exile. The promise is for provision, but maybe not in the way that we most want or expect. The call is to faithfulness. The promise is for deliverance. And essentially what the Lord is saying is this. You live like the new city's coming. It may feel like it's a long way off. Or as Peter would tell us, if he seems slow, he is not slow. Maybe compared to your measures. But he knows that Christ is saying, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. So that's the promise to you. You you can live confidently and securely in all the chaos of a post-truth world, in a rapidly changing culture. You can live like Zion is coming soon. As long as it may take. On this side of the veil, this isn't the end of the story. So how do we, with our lives, tell the story, the real story, and make Jesus non-ignorable? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your church. I thank you for the mission that you've given us. We, We can't do this in our own power, which is how we mess it up so often. These big towers we build to our own ingenuity, Father, in your graciousness, raise them down. Help us to see the beauty of your Son and the foolishness of the gospel as the only hope for ourselves and for our world. Father, these are uh, humble, serious people. They, they feel deeply. They care deeply. They wouldn't be here on most of a Saturday to hear from your word if they did not think more deeply about the things of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would honor them in this investment of time that they have made. Encourage them by your grace. I, I, I pray that nothing I have said has felt like a message of condemnation, uh, perhaps conviction, but Holy Spirit, um, we know that you bring comfort on the back end of conviction and do not leave us there to feel condemned. So help us to see the approval we have in the Son of God, the power we have by the Holy Spirit, and the great smile and favor and reconciliation we have with you, Heavenly Father, by your Son. And it's in his name we pray these things, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.